Let's pray as we come to God's word tonight. Heavenly Father, John the Baptist said in John 3, three important things. He said, a man cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He said, I am not the Christ. And he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Father, I long tonight for Jesus Christ to increase and for me to decrease. I long for him to be lifted up, to draw all of us, heart, mind, soul, body, and strength to him in faith and hope and love. So I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable to you in Christ Jesus by the power of your spirit. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We live in a culture that is obsessed with self. The three most important persons to most people are me, myself, and I. And one of the more recent manifestations of this obsession with self, at least recent in the last number of years, is people's obsession with taking selfies. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you do that often. I, I remember the first time I saw it and heard about it, I thought it was very strange. It was kind of like someone just gazing at their image in the mirror. And I thought, what, what is this? It sounds a little narcissistic. But I do admit, <clears throat> I've taken one selfie. And I want to tell you about it. When our kids, Stephanie and Neil, were little, it was a great joy of mine to make them laugh. And so I would be playing on the floor with them, and I would just pick up whatever was around. Maybe it was blocks or uh, shapes, and I would, I would stick them in my eyes, and then I would just stare at one of them until they finally looked around. And at first, maybe the first couple of times, they thought it was funny, and they laughed. And after that, it was just rolling their eyes, and, oh, Dad, you think you're so funny. And I could never understand why they didn't think it was as funny as I did. Well, several years ago, this was when the kids were growing up, Judy was upstairs working on the computer, and I was downstairs in the living room, and I was all by myself. And I was bored, but I had a bag of pretzels. And pretzels work really good for that, too. Now, kids, I'm an adult. Don't do this, okay? I do not want calls from your parents this week saying they had to take you to emergency because you got stuff stuck in your eyes, okay? So anyway, I thought to myself, self, You've never seen yourself when you did this. It's always somebody else who sees it. So I took out my phone, put two of those little pretzels that were like the little honeycombs, you know, and I stuck them in my eyes, and I leaned back, and I I just did my best Albert Einstein look, kind of... And I clicked it, and I looked, and I'm not kidding. It was the funniest thing I have (laughs) ever seen in my life. And I started roaring with laughter, and I leaped up, and I ran. No, I didn't run up the stairs. I was tripping up the stairs to show Judy this selfie. And I thought, oh, she's just going to think this is so funny. We're going to share this laugh. She looked at me, shook her head, and said something like, you are such a dork. (laughs) So that's my one selfie. I, I believe everybody should have a free pass to take one selfie. And I know some of you have way used up that free pass. But brothers and sisters, we are not made for selfies. 
We were made by God to look at, to gaze upon, to behold something outside of ourselves that is infinitely great and infinitely beautiful that would satisfy us forever. We were made to see God. And so I think at some level, Moses speaks for all of us in Exodus 33, when Moses prayed this audacious prayer, he said to God, please show me your glory. Now Moses had already seen the glory of God in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in the plagues on Egypt and the mighty deliverances, but he wanted something more intimate. He wanted to see God. And God said this to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, and here's the heartbreaking part, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. It's just heartbreaking. Lord, we were made to see you. But sinful men and women and boys and girls cannot look upon God and live. To look upon him in our sinful state would be to dishonor him, and he would have to strike us dead. And anyway, for us in our finite mortality to see so to speak, the naked glory of God, it would just blow our circuits. It would just consume us. It's too much for us. And so, brothers and sisters, I wonder if you hear the staggering promise of tonight's beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, all the promises in the beatitudes are amazing. I think this is the most amazing. We will see God. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. My format, my outline is ridiculously simple. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be blessed, what does it mean to be pure in heart, and what does it mean to see God. And I pray that my sermon will be more interesting than the outline because it's pretty basic. So first of all, what does it mean to be blessed? The Greek word is makarioi. And it's almost always translated blessed or blessed. And scholars, even some of the commentators I consulted, differ whether this means an objective state of blessedness or whether it's a subjective experience. And this this deepens when you realize that a, a perfectly good translation of the word makarioi is happy. So is, is, is Jesus talking about merely an objective state of being blessed or happy? Or is he talking about a subjective experience of happiness? And I believe it's both. I believe it is an objective experience. Objectively, the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are in God's favor. We are recipients of his undeserved kindness. No matter what we're feeling, that is true of us. Objectively, we have the status of justified believers, justified sinners. Objectively, we have the identity of new creations. And objectively, we have the relationship of beloved children. And these are true simply by being in Christ, 
No matter what your day or your week is like, no matter how you're feeling, you don't have to generate happy feelings. These are objectively true because you are in Jesus Christ. And that's incredibly good news. But I believe that eventually, ultimately, even in this life, even though partially, God means this objective state of happiness or blessedness to produce a subjective experience of happiness. How could it not make us happy to be loved by the greatest and most beautiful person in the universe? God means us to experience the happiness of all our sins, past, present, and future sins, completely forgiven and forgotten, and to enjoy complete acceptance by the king of the universe. He means for us to experience the happiness of grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, totally undeserved and beyond anything we can imagine. So I believe it's an objective state that's meant to lead to a subjective experience. But I don't think we always fully understand how happiness or blessedness relates to our Christian life. I think we get holiness. We know God is holy, and we know God commands us to be holy. In fact, he says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But what about happiness? That, that, that doesn't sound right to us. In fact, we often say things like, God's purpose in your life is not to make you happy, but to make you holy. I wonder if you've ever heard that. That's a, that's a great half-truth. Because do you notice how that puts a disconnect within the person of God between his holiness and happiness? And we're not talking about just mere earthly happiness, having nice stuff and having life go well. We're talking about a deeper happiness, a happiness in God. So Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.11, he talks about sound doctrine. That's something we like in this church. But sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now we could paraphrase that. Sound doctrine in accordance with the good news of the holy radiance of the happy God. That's really what it means. In God's person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their holiness and happiness are absolutely one. They're connected. There's, there's incredible bliss and joy that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoy within the Godhead as they are holy, holy, holy. And I believe God means holiness and happiness in this life to some degree, growing, even though it's often weak and intermittent, and ultimately in heaven, our holiness and happiness to be one and the same thing. Now, no one would, would uh, accuse Jonathan Edwards of being some mere sentimental emotionalist, but here's what Jonathan Edwards says about this. Listen to, listen to this. So God communicates to his people of his own happiness. They are partakers of that infinite fountain of joy and blessedness by which he himself is happy. That grace and holiness, that divine life and love, and that peace and joy that is in the heart of the saints is a communication from God from the infinite fountain of God's holiness. Do you see how Edwards just weaves together and connects happiness and blessedness and holiness? So here's the point. 
The first word in our beatitude tonight is blessed or happy. Here's the point. Our growth in holiness, which in the beatitude tonight is described as purity of heart, is our best chance at eternal and ever-increasing happiness. I'll say that again. Our growth in holiness is our best chance at eternal and ever-increasing happiness. In the same way that a young pianist's growth in learning scales and working on tedious and difficult and maybe boring exercises on the piano is her best chance of the ever-increasing happiness of being able to play more beautiful and complex music. So Jesus himself says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We could say, happy are the holy, for they shall see and be satisfied by the infinite truth and goodness and beauty of God. Now, just in case I haven't convinced you that holiness and happiness go together, think about Jesus. In Jesus, we see this perfect marriage of holiness and happiness. In Hebrews 1.9, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 45, which refers to Christ the Messiah. And this is what it says about Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. There's holiness or purity of heart. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's happiness. So blessed, happy, objective state meant to lead to a subjective experience. Second question tonight. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Or we could ask it, what's the heart of purity of heart? Now some of you have heard the name Soren Kierkegaard. He was a Danish philosopher, lived in the 1800s, and he actually wrote a book meant to answer that question, what does purity of heart mean? The name of the book is, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And I think that's a pretty good biblical explanation of purity of heart. It's to be a person of one thing, but I would make a couple qualifications to make it more biblical. First of all, it's not just to will one thing. We are more than just a will. Purity of heart is to desire, to seek after, to love with all your heart one thing. And the second qualification I would make is, I don't think it's adequate to say one thing. It's really a person. Thing is too abstract. It's too philosophical. It's better to say that purity of heart is to desire, to seek after, and love one person, God himself, who is the source and sum of all goodness, truth, and beauty. So to desire and seek after and love God himself above all other things is what purity of heart is. Now, I want to use two scriptures, one Old Testament, one New Testament, to confirm this, to back this up. <clears throat> Last week, Jason's friend, Nate Sheridan, preached a, a wonderful sermon on Psalm 27. I want to quote one verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, written by David. <clears throat> Psalm 27.4, and David says, notice he starts out with one thing. There it is. 
One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. So how does David show purity of heart? <clears throat> he shows it by being a passionate lover of God. David is like a man in love with a woman whom he believes is the most beautiful woman in the world. And in, and in that way, David only has eyes for God. He was infatuated. He was obsessed. He was crazy in love with God himself. And we see this through the sort of intensive verbs that he uses in this, in this uh, verse. He says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I, I want to be with God intimately and permanently. You know, dwell means <clears throat> I want to live there. I don't want to be a guest, a visitor. I don't want to be a stranger. I want to live there. I want to belong there. I want to be with God. Now, you know the house of the Lord ultimately was the tabernacle and the temple finally in Jerusalem. It's where God dwelt himself in a special way, where the supreme goodness of God's presence was tangibly present. And that's where David wanted to be. He longed to be as close to God as he could for as long as he could. <clears throat> but he didn't want to just be there. He wanted to look. He wanted to see. He said, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And notice how that ties right in with our beatitude tonight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what David longed for. I want to see. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, the all-satisfying beauty of the Lord. Now, you know the tabernacle and the temple were filled with beauty. The temple especially <clears throat> had wooden walls and carved into those walls were representations of uh, heavenly and earthly beauty. There were cherubim, worshiping angels, carved into the walls and overlaid with solid gold. There were open flowers and there were palm trees. So the whole inside of the temple was filled with beauty covered with gold. But you know that in the Holy of Holies, that, that cube 20 by 20 by 20 room where the Ark of the Covenant was, there was Above the cherubim in the, on the ark, there was a visible light, a, a manifestation, a special manifestation of the glory. It's called the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord. So David wanted to be in the temple where he would be surrounded by beauty and where he would be close to that glory. And that glory or beauty of the Lord is the original beauty. You've undoubtedly seen many beautiful things in your life. Maybe, it's, maybe you remember a, a spectacular sunset. Maybe you think of fields, just a riot of wildflowers and stunning color. Or maybe it's a, a, a towering, majestic mountain range. Or maybe it's your beloved's face. But whatever you've ever seen that has attracted you and stirred you, or whatever you could even imagine, those are just echoes and images of the original beauty of God himself. And again, notice how this ties in with blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. And then finally, David says, I want to inquire in his temple, or as the footnote says, meditate in his temple. 
I, I not only want to be there with God, I not only want to look at him, I want to talk to him. I want to talk to God. I want to ask him questions. I want to meditate on his truth because his truth is eternal and it's liberating. God's truth brings freedom from all bondage. God's truth brings wisdom that makes you smarter than all your teachers. It brings joy unspeakable and life everlasting. So David showed his purity of heart by being a passionate lover of God. He was a man of one thing. So how about you, my brother, my sister? How about me? I know you believe in God. Would you also say, I love him? And would passionate be a good description of your love for God? Would other people see you as passionately in love with God? Now, maybe when I ask that question, you, you, you just sort of want to hang your head and say, well, boy, I don't love him very much. I often would have to say that too. But think about these two things. First of all, God, God's passionately in love with you because you're in his son. He chose you before the foundation of the world. It had nothing to do with you. He chose to love you, and now you're in his son, and he sees you covered with the beauty of Christ. He loves you. And the other thing to remember is Jesus died because we didn't love God. What, what love from God? We admit, I've loved other things more than you, and, and Jesus came and died for that very reason, to clear away every obstacle for us to respond to that love with love. So don't be discouraged, but make it your desire, your aim, to be a passionate lover of God. So David's a great example for us of a man of one thing, a man who was pure in heart, because he was a passionate lover of God. But we know David, he wasn't the best example. The best example of a, of a, of a person of one thing was a 12-year-old boy. Remember how that 12-year-old boy went to Jerusalem with his parents? And after the festival, after the feast, they started home and he stayed there. And it says in the Gospel of Luke, after three days, they found him. Do you know where he was? He was in the temple. And what was he doing? Sitting among the teachers and asking them questions. That 12-year-old boy is the greatest example, even at 12 years old, of a person of one thing. Even at that age, Jesus wanted to dwell in the house of his father. He wanted to gaze upon the beauty of his father, and he wanted to ask questions and inquire and meditate. Even as a 12-year-old boy, he was perfectly pure in heart, and he wanted and he willed only one thing, to know and to love and to please his father. So that's one example from the Old Testament. Now I want us to think about somebody in the New Testament. So I'd like, you to I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3. And while you're turning there, I'll just remind you what this chapter is about. <clears throat> in this chapter, Paul recounts the catalytic difference it made for him to encounter Jesus Christ. Before he met Jesus, what he loved, well, he really loved himself. He loved his own lineage and heritage. He loved his own <clears throat> legalistic righteousness. He loved being a Pharisee. 
And then he met Jesus, and everything that he thought was important, he said, now that's loss, that's rubbish, that's garbage, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And if you look at verse 10, Paul says something much like David. He says, I want, this is my new desire, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I even want to share in the fellowship of his suffering and be made like him in his death so that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That sounds a lot like David. One thing I have asked of the Lord. But now look at verse 12, because Paul is a man of one thing, not only in what he desires, but in what he does. Paul says, not that I have already, already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Here's that phrase again. But one thing I do. One thing I want. I want to know Christ. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear this language? This is Olympic language. Forgetting what lies behind. Judy and I have been watching the Olympics on and off, as many of you have. There's snowboarders and skiers and skaters, and some of them weren't even old enough for the Olympics four years ago. They don't have to really forget what lies behind because there's nothing there, but some of them were in the Olympics and maybe they came in eighth or tenth and they didn't win a medal. Some of them did win a medal. Some of them even won a gold medal, but they still have to forget all that. They still have to concentrate on what lies ahead. They have to think about my event and this day and this finals. And so in order to do that, they not only forget what lies behind, what lies behind, but what does their straining forward to, to what lies ahead look like? It means they train for hours a day for years, giving up many innocent, legitimate pleasures that for them would just be distractions so that they can press on toward the goal for the prize. That's Olympic language. And that's how Paul lived his Christian life. For Paul, every thought, every word, every action, every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, he pursued the goal of knowing Christ and making him known. Why? So that he could win the prize, so he could Press on toward that goal to win the prize, not for a gold medal, but for the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness. That is purity of heart. To be pure in heart means not only to be a passionate lover of God, but to be an Olympic Christian. Olympic dedication. Olympic intentionality. Olympic intensity of devotion. Brothers and sisters, are you, am I, are we Olympic Christians? But again, even Paul's not our best example. Our best example is Jesus, grown up. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10, 
quoting another psalm, Psalm 40. This is putting words into the mouth of the Messiah. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, my God. Sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? One thing I do. Your law is written within my heart. Jesus was a man of one thing. His delight was to do his Father's will. And again, in John 4, the story of the woman at the well, verses 31 through 34, this is after he's talked to the woman and his disciples come back from town. It says, his disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was a man of one thing, one thing. He set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, real briefly, what else does it mean to be pure in heart? Here are some things that I think will be increasingly true of you as you grow in purity of heart. One writer says, you'll be free from the tyranny of a divided self. You know what that's like, don't you? That, that conflict between the flesh and the spirit, the things I don't want to do, I do, the things I want to do, I don't do. Our divided hearts come from willing or wanting or worshiping more than one thing. Another thing that will be true of you as you become a, uh, a more pure in heart is that you will be more and more a person of integrity instead of hypocrisy. You won't have to play act in front of people because hypocrisy comes from wanting to please more than one person. And finally, the person who is growing in purity of heart will be increasingly increasingly marked by all the other beatitudes. Poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, merciful. In other words, you will be growing up more and more to be a true citizen of the kingdom. Now be careful, your purity of heart doesn't earn you or cause you to become a citizen of the kingdom, but those things are the evidence that you are growing up into your citizenhood. Our lack of growth in the Beatitudes, I believe, comes from the fact that we often don't want to be citizens of the kingdom. We want to be tourists or vacationers, occasionally getting excited about those things, visiting the kingdom. But living there means every day, doesn't it? That's what it means to be a citizen. So are you a kingdom tourist or a kingdom citizen? Last big question, what does it mean to see God? Let me just quickly read two other verses or passages that remind us that this is indeed our destiny. We are meant to see God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, this is the love chapter, he says, now we see in a mirror dimly. I think that means we see reality, God. But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. And I think even more clear, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. John says, beloved, we are God's children now, 
and what we will be has not yet appeared. Listen to this. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. So the good news of the gospel, because of the coming in Christ, because of his life and death and resurrection, the good news is we will see God and we won't die. We will live. In fact, we'll be more alive when we see Jesus than we ever dreamed of because we will see him as he is and we will be made like him. In C.S. Lewis's novel, Paralandra, he has a quote, one of my favorite Lewis quotes. He says, there is a face above all worlds merely to see is irrevocable joy. There's a face, the face of Christ. We're going to see it. We're going to become like him. And we will be struck with such joy, we will never get over it. Now, this whole idea of seeing God raises a question. It's a theological question. It's also kind of a metaphysical question. And again, scholars, commentators, even early church fathers de debate this. And the question is, when it says we're going to see God, is that we're going to see him physically? Or is that merely spiritual? And again, there's people on both sides of it. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the people I read in preparing for this sermon was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he sort of, he's a little pessimistic about the whole question. He says, we just do not know. The very being of God is so transcendent and eternal that all our efforts to arrive at an understanding are doomed at the very outset to failure. Maybe Lloyd-Jones is saying that this, idea, this question of whether it's physical or merely spiritual belongs to the secret things that God has not revealed to us. Or maybe like King David in Psalm 131, it's, it's those things that are too great and marvelous for me and I will not occupy myself with those things. <clears throat> and there's some truth in that, right? We don't want to be speculating about things God has not spoken about. But I think we can say more than what Dr. Lloyd-Jones says. Because think of this. We've already talked about it. We will see Jesus with our eyes, won't we? Jesus is the God-man. He's fully divine, but he's fully human. We're going to see him with our eyes. And and, and Jesus says, when you see him, you see God. So when we see Jesus, the God-man, the experience of seeing him will be so dynamic, so catalytic, so life-transforming that our purity of heart, which is now weak and inconsistent, will be finally perfected. In other words, you will finally love Jesus with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. And what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4 will finally perfectly come true. Paul says that we will see the light <clears throat> of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now we know that whatever God does, he does primarily through his son, Jesus Christ. And so even though it might be hard to imagine or describe or explain what it will be like to see the Father, we do know that we will see Jesus. 
And that will be the primary way that we see the Father. And it will engage the entire person, body and soul. And it will be the final satisfaction of every longing we've ever had. Now, we want to close. And I was a little misleading when I said there was going to be three questions, because we have, we have to just briefly talk in closing about what is, how do we become pure in heart? Because everything depends on purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, again, this could be a whole other sermon. I'm just going to say one thing in closing, one thing. How do we become pure in heart? We become pure in heart by looking at Jesus with two eyes, the eye of faith and the eye of hope. What is the eye of faith? 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding or seeing the glory of the Lord, that's referring to Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So it is possible now, not with our physical eyes to see him, but with the eye of faith to see Jesus and become increasingly like him, more and more pure in heart, more and more holy. You say, well, how do we see Jesus? Well, through the ordinary means of grace. God can use extraordinary means, but ordinarily he uses the ordinary means of grace. So let's just talk about one of those, your daily Bible reading. Tomorrow when you open your Bible to read and meditate on the Word, you can see Jesus. Now, you might be saying, it's not really my experience. I don't have any new Bible study technique to tell you. It's not a matter of technique. It's just a matter of intention. Do you want to see Jesus? Remember in John's Gospel, some Greeks came up to Philip. You remember what they said? Sir, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. So tomorrow when you open your Bible, that's what you say to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, it is your joy and delight and your ministry to reveal Jesus, to exalt him as Lord, to reveal what he has said and done. So Holy Spirit, I would see Jesus. Open the eyes of my heart. Unstop my ears. Let me hear joy and gladness. As, as Augustine said, strike my heart so that I love you. Show me Jesus, Holy Spirit. And guess what? He will do that. So that's how we see Jesus with the eye of faith. What about the eye of hope? Let me go back to 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> I already quoted some of this, but not all of it. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Now, here's the part I didn't read. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see what that means? We can look at Jesus every day in the Bible through the ordinary means of grace, Sunday worship, serving others, so on. But we can also look ahead to that day and we can think about it. What will it be like to finally see him and fall into his embrace and be just rid of all sin and hindrances and distractions and to be loved perfectly and to love him? And the more we think about that, the more we hope in that, it actually purifies us right now. It makes us more pure in heart. 
So how do we become pure in heart? We look at Jesus with two eyes, and it's, it's really a, a wonderful biblical paradox, isn't it? It's the pure in heart that will see God in Christ, but we become pure in heart by seeing God in Christ with the eye of faith and with the eye of hope. So brothers and sisters, tomorrow, behold him. Behold him. Make that your intention. And look forward to beholding him perfectly and face to face on the final day. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Lord, it's true for all of us that sometimes things we read in your word, things we're taught, seem too good to be true. Right now, we confess that our experience is often so weak and stumbling and inconsistent. Thank you that Jesus died for sinners like that, like me. And thank you that we have the objective state of being justified and adopted and dearly beloved. And thank you that your spirit dwells within us and every day is moving us towards purity of heart, even in this life, to behold, even in a mirror dimly, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And thank you that we have the hope. You've actually predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we will see him and we will be perfected. So Lord, let us not be discouraged. Let us be humble, confess our weakness to you, but let us, like Paul, forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And we pray this with gratitude in his name. Amen.